Hello, everyone. Welcome to the STEM Cells podcast, that sells with an S, where we talk about all things interesting in science, medicine, tech, and entrepreneurship. My name is Nadim, and I'm going to be one of the hosts on this podcast. And in this episode, we're excited to have Yuhan Sonin, who is a lecturer at MIT for Engineering Process and Design and a director of a company called GoInvo. Hi, Yuhan. Uh, my name is Kareem. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate your time. So let's, let's dive right into it. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and just a little bit about your company, GoInvo? Well, I'm not that interesting. Um, you need really, you're scraping the bottom of the barrel here. Um, but <laughs> if you really want to know, uh, uh, yes, my name's Yuhan. Uh, I pretend to run a business called GoInvo. We're in the Republic of Arlington, Massachusetts, uh, right next to Medford, right next to Cambridge, uh, which is right next to a COVID hotspot called Boston. Um, and we specialize in designing beautiful services for patients, for clinicians, and policy wonks, uh, all the way down from the protein level to the pixel level to the policy level. And uh, that's what I'm, we've been doing at GoInvo with really an open source push. Our ideas here is uh, that we want to get out in the world is we want anyone to use them. Uh, across Spaceship Earth uh, with a business-friendly license so that they can just go abuse and use the things that we make and hopefully make them better. Um, and yes, I do teach at an institution in Cambridge. All right. So just to jump off that question, um, you said you make visualizations for health. What do you mean by that? Well, visual, visualizations can be lots of things. Uh, they are uh, maybe a, a simple version of that is I got a blood pressure metric uh, back from my little blood pressure cuff at home uh, or I'm at the clinic and I do it and you see the two data points, right? Um, you see the pressure uh, and what your body is doing. So a simple visualization is literally just drawing those numbers uh, on a screen or printing them on a piece of paper. Um, but then something a little more useful might be is for patients who may not know what the heck blood pressure is, um, is a little explanation written in fifth grade English or language of choice. Um, maybe more visual. Maybe you have some steps on what's happening inside of your body that's uh, propelling that metric to come forth. Uh, and maybe you show, and that's, and then you show the data and explain it a little bit, all in, you know, an index card type of uh, size, whether it's a piece of paper or a screen. So it gives a visual story to what's happening. And that's a, that's a you know, one kind of visualization. Another that you may be intimating is something much more complex. How do you visualize the entire healthcare system? Uh, I, I still don't know how to do that, by the way. And uh, if you try to Google it, uh, I can't find a good picture of it. So there's a project for somebody. Um, but that would be on the opposite end of that scale is how do you sort of see the entire system of something from the galactic to the atomic? How's that for mediocre answer? That's excellent. It's a great answer. Um, yeah, so kind of branching off of that, uh, you know, obviously visualiz visualizations are very important because not every typical person would understand, uh, you know, the ins and outs of what they're seeing on a piece of paper. So, you know, what's been stopping people in the medical world from using visualizations on a greater level and, 
could you you know tell us a little more about why you think it's important to start using them okay so why is it important well as humans we're built in biologically over centuries and millennia uh, through our evolution to see things right to hear things to taste things to smell you know and you know get the pheromones so wouldn't it be cool if you actually do a visualization with pheromones and smell and all sorts of cool stuff right and sound dynamic sound so let's we're just talking about visuals at this moment and so even as uh cave women and men and in between we drew this stuff on a wall for god's sakes um and so that happened even before language or maybe simultaneous as language um and so it, it runs in our bones of a species to start to see things and so uh it takes a, a pretty educated um part of our brain to even read in some ways right and read text read language put it together uh in alphabets and so there's something more visceral uh that applies to our reptilian brain of the visual right uh are we being hunted or are we hunting um uh, so that needs that's there's a power there in the visual i mean i don't uh, that's you know, i don't need to say much more about it in terms of why it's the potent um i think it's been easier to just print you know just to send the report with the data like an excel spreadsheet because that's what computers we've we've taught computers in essence to do and that's what we've been doing for for a long 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 time in healthcare and other industries too is you you write down the data and you write it down because you've technically learned it this way and then you know you give it to a patient or your colleague and you expect them to know what's what that means and most often they may not especially you know the doctor to patient relationship um patients are not trained like clinicians are like nurses are um so this is part of the visual visualization ex uh, exercise too is um how do you make sure you get the patients up the curve um that's one aspect how do you make sure nurses and cl and and clinicians get up the curve as well they need a different kind of visualization it's not a one size fits all thing um and so i think it is really uh now becoming more commonplace to see better and better vis techniques inside of hospitals and with patients both we have a long way to go but uh we are making so i think remarkable progress because actually data is becoming more and more standardized and that to me is a uh an excellent harbinger of where healthcare can go excellent thank you for that so i've been reading a book about storytelling do you think that these kind of visualizations for both a simpler version for the patients and you know something that meets the needs of doctors and nurses you would you be able to say that these are kind of stories yes of course they are um there are micro stories even just one symbol is a kind of story right you put um a skull and crossbones uh on a barrel <laughs> right <laughs> on a big rusty barrel in your backyard somewhere you're like oh okay that is a story unto itself your mind races of what the hell could be in there but like hey that's a one single sig a signal to to set something off in your brain um so hell yes they're stories what are some of the, your favorite products that are coming out either you built or other people are building that you know kind of encompass these values who that's a good one you know i tend not to look uh for inspiration in the healthcare field uh sadly 
<laughs> because, um, you know, uh, uh, when when one of your main modalities of sending information to each other is a thing called a fax uh, that's already almost uh, as older than I am, for God's sakes, uh, you know, you're in trouble. But uh, uh, to be less serious, I have uh, and typically look for the past couple of years at music um, and what little devices that have come out of uh, Roly, R-O-L-I. I'm holding this little device. It's the Roly light block. It's got a little membrane on it and it, it glows where your finger is. It's pressure sensitive. It's really, really beautiful little device and you make music with it. Why is that interesting? Because uh, uh, you feel pain. Right. And people feel pain differently. They hear pain. They uh, it feels different to them. It's not just uh, eyeballs only. Right. Um, and I also look for interface and fun design. And I also too look at music sometimes. Another musical device is uh, from Teenage Engineering called the OP1. Now, why am I telling you this is like a really nerdy little device, but it is beautifully constructed and the interface and the weirdness just makes it a fun experience. And there is something lacking in our healthcare, well, there's a lot lacking, as you said in the beginning, but that, that sort of ignores the, wow, how can I ignite curiosity about what the frick is happening with my body? Um, and, uh, you know, uh, it, it's pretty, I think, telling that we haven't injected that kind of fun into the experience of healthcare. One, because when we get healthcare, it's usually serious, meaning it's like seagull management. You swoop in, you poop on something and it gets bad and then hopefully you remedy it. Right. right. Um, and so uh, uh, that's part of the problem as well. But we need to build this uh, and build more services that invite investigation and play versus, oh, shit, what's my number? So you mentioned earlier this idea of open source uh, data. What's, what does that mean, you know, in general? And then how can we apply it to the healthcare system? Okay, well, there's, there's two parts there. There's open source, and then there's data. And then together, there's also open source data. So it's really three things in that one thing that you said there, which is uh, interesting and complex at the same time. The idea of open source is that the thing you are making, whether it's a physical thing or a digital thing, um, is available for people to interrogate, to see how it works. And, and when we're talking about software and services you use on your phone, for example, that means that it, it comprises, open an open source service comprises of three fundamental tenets. And that is one, you can see the code, you can look at it as placed somewhere public, like a GitHub or Bitbucket, somewhere where your code resides. So everyone can see it and investigate for bias or see how it works. Um, so that's the first thing, accessible thing. The thing is open and you can get it. The second part is that there's a license attached to that use so that people who go and sniff and whiff and dig at it a little bit, understand how they could use it. There's a license that says, oh, here's the business-friendly license for you. Oh, here's the viral license. So that's the second thing is there is a modality or understanding of how the license is going to work. And the third thing is community. And that's the thing a lot of open source projects suffer from is how do you get external people, other people other than you, to come in and sift through what's happening, build community, critique, spread the word, et cetera. So those are the three tenets. 
you can find it. It's open on some repository too. There's a license three community. The second part, you said, well, open source, that's one thing. And I think open source in healthcare is dramatically underrepresented versus the internet, right? The, the infrastructure of the internet is mostly open source, a vast majority of it, right? So we have Linux, you have Apache, you've got Android. I mean, I could go on and on and on. All these uh, Wikipedia, uh, phenomenally good uh, infrastructure components and units in, in, internet, in the internet. And yet when we look at healthcare, the infrastructure for most of healthcare is anti-open source. Um, they close it down because there's uh, a number of reasons for that. Uh, one, there was an initial, I think, scariness with health and health data and lives on the line. Well, the internet has lives on the line as well, if you think about it at a much bigger scale in some ways. Um, uh, that there needs to be a different kind of protection, uh, that people shouldn't see how it works. And I find that to be uh, criminal almost. So my, my, really, my reason for being on the planet is being an apostle for open source healthcare. So that could be its own diatribe, which I'll cut short right now. But the second part of your thing, your question there is about data. Data isn't necessarily need to be open source. Your data, if you don't want to share it, you shouldn't, it should be private. I don't expect everyone to open source their data. I don't think that's good. Um, crazies like me, sure, we can publish our genome on GitHub and go for it. You can uh, plant it in the crime scene. Make sure there's a sheep or a goat nearby. My entire digital health life is downloadable and open source. Wow, that's amazing. I don't recommend it for everybody. Uh, but that's, uh, so that's, I just don't want people to, to, you know, combine the two open source data, um, and meaning that their health data needs to be open. That's, that's not the case here, but there are really interesting open source data projects like one called Cynthia. And what Cynthia does is it creates a few million synthetic health records. So synthetic humans, and it creates the records for them, the longitudinal health record and plops them out so you can use them in testing out your services. It's a really fantastic idea that we need more of because everyone doesn't, no one wants to give up their data. Um, well, few, a lot of people do wanna give up their data if it's to research and good things, right? And they know it's gonna be protected. Um, but this is a way for us to test out health services without having to use real data, but it looks like real data. Anyway, so that's Cynthia and that's just one example of that exact word phrase, open source data, that I think uh, people should know about. So moving on from that, uh, you mentioned early that, um, you know, drawing an understandable picture of a patient is something that's necessary to advance healthcare. So how do we draw this picture of a patient and, you know, how do we make it easy for the patient to understand? How do you, how do you, how do you look at yourself and your healthcare? Where do you go? That is a problem, but also you're young and fantastic and healthy, virile, you know, so, you know, when you're in your 20s or 30s, you're like, ah, screw it. You know, uh, I can go and, you know, play basketball for four hours a day and have 14 burritos and two Twinkies. Your body and mind are insane, insanely awesome. Uh, and then you hit a little bit of middle age. and You're like, what the hell is happening to me? I'm falling apart. I'm a mess. Uh, <laughs> some people realize that much earlier. Uh, and in fact, uh, maybe you're, you're hinting at this is, uh, you know, it should be done probably in K6, uh, where health literacy 
and understanding your mind, understanding your biology, and basics of good care and self-care should be part of K-6 education. It should be taught in schools. Here we are worrying about, well, you know, I, look, I, uh, I have a big appreciation for math and for some of the sciences and some of the things we do in school, but early kids, I think, are uh, have been, I think we're, we're mistreating our young. Uh, they need to be outdoors more. They need to be figuring out basic life skills and how to talk to each other, basic self-care skills. And I think this is just something we've overlooked for, you know, basically modern education. So uh, where was I going with that? I just think it's um, important for us to start early. And seeing healthcare too, then as we get older, in our teens, in our 20s, in our 30s, our 40s, our 50s, 70s, and 100s, and eventually be in our 120s and 30s, uh, as we really nail this um, longe uh, longevity gene, or multiple genes, we're going to need to see different pictures of us. And part of that, Kareem, is, I think, seeing the future. How do you see yourself in five years? If I'm on this path right now of the four burritos a day, 14 Twinkies and two hours of basketball, here's what you're going to be looking like or feeling like and doing in 10 years. Wow, Yuhan, you are a disaster. Check. Um, you know, uh, and I think because we are so visual people uh, or and sonically oriented, we should be able to see ourselves a little bit in advance. I think that mirror, mirror on the wall stuff could actually really uh, work well with our behavior, how our brains work. You know, honestly, I think connecting it back to the visualiz visualizations, like you mentioned, you know, just painting an easy, understandable picture for the patient, you know, to see, because like you said, uh, in healthcare, it's a disaster. People are, you know, getting a whole bunch of data that they don't understand. And, you know, I think it's important, like you said, to, you know, really crack down on that and paint a picture of them that they themselves can understand. Johan, you spoke a little bit about this idea of health literacy. And there's some, you know, there's some new technology like the Apple Watch and things like that, that are like kind of medical wearable technology. So what are your thoughts on this and how can we improve it? We are just going to have more and more uh, sensors in our life over the next several decades, right? So uh, in our house now, I don't know, how many, how many think do you, do you have, how many pieces of silicon, separate silicon do you have floating in your house at the moment or your apartment? I bet a ton. Yeah, they're, they're, there's a lot at the moment. They're probably 20 to 50, um, not sentient, but communicating devices in your uh, home alone right now. I think that we're gonna, it's gonna, it's going up orders of magnitude because everything is going to ha is having silicon in it at, at this point and a way to communicate with other silicon and with us so uh we're going we're already inundated by data it's just going to get more interesting over time and so uh yes our phones right now are our main sensor and yeah you can get some watches and other things i had for eight years uh, on these armbands on me uh in the 2000s I wore it for eight years straight, pretty much, just to get a bead on what the hell was happening with me. And actually, once you have it on for a few months and your your behavior as a human doesn't change too much, too drastically, too often, you understand it a little better immediately. Um, so I have hope that our phones in our houses and our homes and our apartments will be a, a really safe haven for us, but also a 
a capture haven for interesting data about us. We spend a lot of time there, right? So uh, maybe part of your point is, you know, you can wear these things uh, and it becomes our doctor in our pocket a bit. And that to me is where really interesting stuff happens, where you're working both with your machines in your, in your pocket, on your arm, uh, with your brain, with your care team, your doctor. You may have a physical doctor. You'll have several robot doctors, and there's no question. One that just looks at these metrics, one that just looks at your uh, number, and one, number one, number two, when you go to the bathroom, right? Your toilet's going to be another doctor. Um, sounds gross, but you know we're literally flushing data down the toilet every day that could be a phenomenally good way to pick up what's happening inside my biome, for instance. So I think we're just at the tip of the iceberg. And while it scares many people, myself included, in terms of the exponential possibilities of silicon everywhere, um, if we have a way to protect ourselves against uh, uh, that data roaming, maybe we have to own it. Uh, but if there's some protection there, uh, I think the possibilities of extending human health outcomes and making them much, much, much better, not necessarily longer life. I want just better life over time. I think that's going to happen uh, in the next uh, 10 years or so. That's amazing. So do you envision, for example, all these data being collected, for example, through the wearable technologies? Would you envision them being sent to the doctor to be read? Well, uh, now because our bots are, are brute force, maybe, uh, I, I, okay, let me, let me backtrack. Over time, you are going to sign up for virtual clinical care from a few bots. It'll be like a Netflix model, right? Um, uh, so instead of paying your 14 bucks a month for Netflix, you'll pay your five bucks a month, or maybe it's how uh, you pass in your, uh, 1099 or your W-2 to the service, to the government service. And you say, oh, how much do you earn? Oh, you earn uh, $50,000. You get it free. Uh, oh, um, you're earning $14 million a year? Yeah, yeah. Start ponying up big money every month. That's my fantasy. Sorry. Um, but you, I think we'll have lots of robot doctors doing the initial parsing, figuring out, okay, what's the first level, second level stories to your idea before that you can tell patients and their family? Then if you're like, oh, I'm looking at my phone here. Yeah, that's interesting. Wow, I didn't know about that. Ooh. And the service says, well, maybe you should talk to a community healthcare worker about X and maybe they'll come visit your house and help you through this. Oh, this one's a little more serious. Um, you know, maybe there's a polyp forming somewhere. Uh, you may want to talk to somebody. Boom, talk, make an appointment. Jung. I think there'll be multiple variants of what a doctor is in my life from robot to service to someone who arrives at my home as a community healthcare uh, individual which is fantastic service by the way huge uptick in terms of health outcomes and relatively inexpensive and then the rare but really needed intervention by a clinician kind of branching off of that uh, these days telehealth and telemedicine as you may know are becoming more and more prominent um, and sometimes a lot of the main question people might ask is, um, you know, will a visit with telehealth or via telehealth be as effective as an in-person one? And, uh, you know, how would you answer that in terms of, you know, robots taking over in the medical world? 
Well, I want to say robots should be, uh, when I say robots or services or digital services or algorithms or models, um, they work best when they are working hand in hand with a human or multiple humans. So when you see one robot making a diagnosis versus one clinician making a diagnosis, uh, they're pretty close, right, in terms of hit rates. Um, I think it's like 82 or 83 percent or something like that. Uh, it could be a little higher, but that's around the hit rate, the good hit rate. When they work together, they're in the one nine position, meaning at least over 90 percent accuracy. So they up it by eight points or so by working together. And that's, I think, what you're going to see more and more of is you, you're not, we're, this is about amplifying humans in their job. This is about being able to do diagnosis at scale and having humans do good things, the, the things they're best at human to human conversations, Sherlock Holmesing a little bit, right? Figuring things out, figuring out the puzzles. And the robots doing this things they're great at is number crutching, probability, statistics, uh, munching through all the, lo the longitudinal health records. So I think you can do them both together. And that will be, for me, where you start to sing a harmonic versus just um, displacing humans. And, and that's where you, you weren't necessarily going there. But I think working together, that'll be pretty fantastic. But virtual care, if you look at the statistics, um, depending on like if it's primary care, I think like 70% 70, 70 of primary care can be done remotely, 70%. And uh, another uh, few studies now over the past four years has have mentioned that over half of all encounters in the United States, right? The half a billion encounters per year that, are, that go on in uh, North America, that half of them, could at least be done at home. Think about that for a second. That is an enormous statistic, uh, an amazing one that says, okay, clinicians can be, can practice maybe a lot of their time at home. Some of the time they'll need equipment and things like that, but like it allows clinicians to have flexibility, helps patients to give, uh, to have flexibility. Now, when you're going into like an oncological visit, you know, and you're, you're finding out and talking about stage three cancer, that may require a different encounter type, right? Um, but again, I think uh, uh, we are ripe for doing many, 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 many more things on the silicon bricks in our pocket, remotely that is. So it's all about kind of working in harmony or using machines to help amplify patient care. And alleviate stress from clinicians. Right. They're already stressed to the hilt. You're seeing burnout and people leaving. Um, we don't have enough clinicians to go around. I mean, we're lucky here in the United States and here in the Northeast. I think it's a one to three hundred relation relation uh, ratio between doctor and patient. Right. Everywhere else in the world, it could be one to five hundred, one to a thousand, one to thirty thousand if you're in the you know Sahara. So I think this is like uh, the planet is going to benefit from this as well. How do you think integrating these technologies that we were talking about into healthcare, how could they improve uh, patient care overall? Okay, well, one thing is uh, health happens right now, 24 hours a day, 365 days a week, uh, a year. And part of the system here likes to cue people from nine to five. And so when I'm sick with a migraine or I'm 
coming down with something or you know my service tells me oh, something's about to happen uh, and that's two o'clock in the morning a lot of stuff happens early in the morning when people are most people are not awake but your body's doing something funky uh, I'm going to want that immediate response and so I think the technology plus uh, a little more flexible human model will really help 20, you know, having health everywhere. In essence, if you have a cell phone connection, and maybe that's part of residency here in the United States, part of the universal basic income is you have a cell phone connection uh, to do the basics, um, and of which primary care is one and housing is another or whatnot. But yeah, you have a cell phone, you can get basic care from anywhere. And I think that is a fundamental game changer for U.S. residents and U.S. citizens. Um, that to me would be a huge step in the right direction. It's never just technology too, and, and you're not intimating that at all, but uh, it's never just a technical solution to these things. Uh, most often it's the human screwing it up royally. Um, and so we have to sometimes get, uh, uh, understand how potent uh, and weird human behavior is in creating systems, in rolling this out, in administering it, uh, in making policy. And so I think most of the time it's humans in the loop that are the ones uh, doing the funny things. So, you know, moving on from that, uh, you mentioned in one of your talks once that uh, we're not trained to think about healthcare. Do you think you could elaborate on this a little? Sure. Well, um, look, most humans don't want to think about healthcare. Do you want to think about it? No, I want to go uh, uh, build my quadcopter. I don't know, or make music in my you know uh, backyard with a couple of buddies. Uh, I want to go and ski. Uh, I want to go live my life. I want to spend time with my grandchildren. I want to spend time with my uh, boyfriend. Uh, I want to you know whatever. Uh, you don't ever really want to think about health, and yet there's a good chunk of humans who have some condition for most of their life, and they have to think about that thing. Uh, how that thing works within the system of their health. But if you had your choice, you wouldn't want to think about it. So that's the first thing is that uh, we shouldn't have to think about it. And yet when health happens, um, uh, then all of a sudden you're like, oh, shit. <laughs> Uh, what do I do? What happens? And so, like we talked about, we haven't been trained on it very well as patients. Um, and that's sort of by design because we're like, oh, we, you know, cause, because we don't want to think about it, we're pushing it off. We're, like, we're going to let an expert help us with it. And yet most often we're really good about knowing what's happening with our body. We're just good at ignoring it too. Um, so we're our experts on us usually. And uh, uh, I think that just starts early with teaching people about self-care. Um, and until we take a little more responsibility, um, and this is not like a, uh, you know, United Statesians uh, do everything ourselves uh, and we're going to do it better than everyone else. No, that's not the, that's not the vibe here. It's just, we just have to begin to um, uh, figure out how we inject this into education, how we make this more of a pleasurable experience so that we, we don't, panic we don't have we don't have lab coat bp blood pressure like when you go and you know people that's a known condition you walk into a hospital and your brain starts moving differently like oh crap i'm at a hospital all right <laughs> people die here uh and so there's there's a there's an overhead that i think we have put on ourselves to uh i think make the idea of health really difficult 
Okay, I think that's a good spot to wrap up the episode. Uh, <laughs> I don't need more of this. Where's the plunge button? Okay. Uh, thank, thank you so much for coming. You made some excellent points, and I'm sure all our viewers are going to be very eager to listen to all of them. Oh, yes. So uh, thank you so much, and uh, until next time.